The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athe Creek Christian Fellowship. All right, Isaiah. Well, I, uh, I hope you've been enjoying the study through Isaiah. Isaiah is a, a unique book. It, it definitely feels different when you're studying it, you know, as we're going through the Bible. It's got a different cadence and a different sort of vibe from beginning to end, and, um, and yet it's so rich and good, and it's kind of heavy in a lot of places. Um, but I'm thankful that it covers uh, so many things, and there's a little bit of everything in Isaiah. There's beautiful pictures of Jesus Christ. There's prophecy concerning future events. Um, there's a drama unfolding during the, the, the time of Isaiah and his prophesying before the kings of Judah. Um, there's so much really packed into this, but we left off last week. We started touching on the tribulation period, that seven-year period where God is going to start to intervene uh, with humanity. And if you recall, we, that seven-year period called the tribulation, um, it's going to be a brutal time. Uh, it's where God pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world, and uh, don't be deceived, that's coming. And, you know, people talk about this current crisis we're in, you know, this pandemic, um, you know, and uh, if, you're, if you think, well, th- could this be the tribulation? Maybe this is us Christians. We're going through the tribulation. Some, some good Christians who I know and love believe that the church is actually going to go through that period called the tribulation. Um, I don't believe we're going to go through the tribulation, and there's so many reasons why. I've done whole sermons and teachings on the reasons why I believe the rapture of the church will happen before or extreme, right prior to the, the tribula, trib, tribulation period, um, you know, it's God's wrath being poured out upon the world. He doesn't pour his wrath on his children. Would you pour your wrath out uh, in final judgment on your children uh, to wipe out, you know, a bunch of thieves and robbers in your neighborhood? Um, no, you'd, you'd take them out. And the Lord does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He took Enoch out before the flood, and he brought Noah and his family through the flood, which is a type of the Jews. And we're going to see that tonight, that the Jews will go through the tribulation because they don't know the Messiah by and large. Most of Jewish people around the world do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they've been deceived on that one. Their eyes have been blinded, the Bible says, but they'll see it. They're going to see it someday. The Lord's going to reveal that Jesus is the Messiah. But um, that time period was described for us in our previous chapter. We kind of wrapped it up quickly there at the end of last week. In chapter 10, if you kind of recall that, uh, it talked about the cutting down of these trees. In verse uh, 33 of chapter 10, it says, Behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts, which is speaking of the Lord militarily, the Lord of hosts shall lop the bough uh, with terror, with the high ones of stature will be hewn down and the haughty will be humbled and he shall cut down the uh, thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. Th- these trees are really a type or a picture of um, the nations of the world, and the Lord's going to cut them down like a, with an axe, uh, a fatal blow, if you would. And, um, and that's kind of where we left as sort of this tribulation period. Seven years. Now, just for the high-level uh, reminder, you know, so there's the the, the time period we're living in right now is called the age of grace or the church age, where the Gentiles are being gathered to the Lord. And that's the church of Jesus Christ in all the countries of the world. That's this church age that we're living in. The end of the church age is called the fullness of the Gentiles. That is in Rev, uh, pardon me, Romans chapter 11, 
Verse 25 talks about how, you know, there's coming a time where when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Um, and I believe that means the last Gentile that's going to accept Christ and believe. When that happens, then it says, then the, the, there's going to be sort of that removing of the Gentiles. That's the, that's the rapture of the church. I believe that's us. We're going to be taken up. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, who believes in Jesus will be taken to be with the Lord. Um, it's it's uh, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, speaks of that event we call the rapture. It's called harpazo in the Greek. It's called rapture in the Latin translation of the New Testament. It's called, say, uh, the King James puts it as be caught up in the air to be with the Lord. Uh, the rapture of the church. So that's the next thing on the, on the list of things that needs to happen. However, we see signs of the times that we're living in. And this COVID virus that we're seeing now, people say, Brett, this is like the tribulation period. Well, I think that the tribulation period is going to be way worse um, than what we're dealing with right now. I know the coronavirus is bad and it has changed a lot of our schedules and where we go and what we're able to do. You know, um, I was seeing some of the memes out there. Have you guys been following some of the memes people have been passing around? But I saw like an old guy talking to his grandson saying, back in 2020, you know, we were sitting around uh, during the, the pandemic of 2020, and we were pa- passing around memes. <laughs> There's worse, worse ways to spend, uh, you know, uh, times of pandemic uh, compared to other times in history. And it is bad, but man, read Revelation 6 through 19. It's the description of the tribulation period. And, and um, it's going to be a horrifying time uh, where uh, cataclysmic things are going to be happening all over the globe, all over the planet, uh, including pestilence and disease like coronavirus. I think that's one of the marks, um, you know, and, and earthquakes and hurricanes and uh, volcanoes and uh, all kinds of things that are, you know, natural cataclysmic events but also um, perhaps health events and other things, supernatural things, demonic things, all kinds of things are going to be happening during the tribulation period. And that's what we saw in chapter 10. Now, the next thing we have is to see some, something that happens that changes gears from the tribulation to the next thing. What's the next event after the tribulation? Well, technically, the the season that that's going to be called is the millennial kingdom, a thousand years where the Lord Jesus returns, and he's going to rule and reign in righteousness. And that's what chapter 11 is going to talk about, the, the second coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he? He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's one of the things we're supposed to pray for. And by the way, when you feel like you're in a different world, you know, where you're just kind of, um, you know, man, I don't even feel like I belong here anymore. Uh, so many crazy things going on in the world. One of the things I like to do, instead of complaining and saying, people are crazy today, or, you know, these people, we need to get this or that to happen, and everybody's nuts. Instead of doing that, wouldn't it be better for you and I to say, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because that's, what, that's what's going to fix all the problems of this world is Jesus ruling and reigning. What the world needs is Jesus. And so um, I think that's the right mentality. And I I think we pray for that because we want it to happen. But we also pray that because it changes my heart when I see what's going on around the world. And instead of getting frustrated, if I'm praying, Lord, thy kingdom come, then we're talking about what's going to be described here in Revelation or um, uh, in the book of Revelation, but also in the book of Isaiah chapter 11. So let's read. Let's take a look. Isaiah 11, 1. It says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem 
of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now, um, there's an interesting list there. We'll talk about that in a second. But this first couple of verses are chock full of meaning. And uh, man, the question is, how deep would it, do we want to go tonight? Because we could spend a month just talking about this, this first verse. Uh, so I'm going to give you sort of the high-level views. Some people say, man, Brett, we're going deep in the study through the Bible. And the answer to that is, no, we're not. We're barely scratching the surface. Uh, you know, one of the things about going verse by verse through the Bible as a church that claims to go through the Bible, I want to do it in a reasonable amount of time. So that's why we're on like right now, 15 to 20 year pace. <laughs> the first time we did it in 13 years, this next time, hopefully we'll be closer to 15 or 16. That's the goal. Um, so there is a, a, a you know, but I, I, I want to say, don't feel like you have to just leave it here after we leave chapter 11, verse one tonight. You could study this uh, on your own time uh, and, and dig deeper. Um, so I'm just going to throw you the bone so you can chew on it a little bit tonight and, and get you started. But uh, there's so much here, it's actually um, um, mind-dizzying. Uh, what do you mean, Brad? I just heard about a branch and some Jesse and this roots. What's going on? Well, let's break it down. And there shall come forth a rod. Now, the rod is something that we should know about. Um, you know, when you see a shepherd in your mind of Bible days, what do you picture him carrying? Well, you picture him carrying, you know, the shepherd's hook, you know, the staff, where it's got a hook and it sound like this. All the hallmark cards have those, the shepherd's crook. Well, that's called his staff. But did you know the shepherd of Bible times also had a rod? The rod was a short club, and it was used for two main things. First, it was used to fend off wolves and creatures that wanted to have lamb chops. And uh, the shepherd was not going to allow that to happen, and so he would break out his rod and club anything that would come in the, in the way if a, if a coyote or a wolf would come, bonk, he'd bonk him on the head with his rod. It was a thick kind of club sort of thing. But it was also used, believe it or not, to correct the sheep. Uh, and you, we, we've talked about Philip Keller's book. Uh, you know, he's a Middle Eastern shepherd who wrote a book, uh, Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, and he talks about how the shepherd would break the legs of a disobedient lamb that would tend to wander off into the thicket and... and uh, it was going to die of a wolf or if it would go off by itself. So he would break a leg, patch it back up, and carry that lamb around his neck um, for weeks. And eventually that lamb would be uh, healed and uh, walk next to that shepherd, knowing the shepherd's voice, the scent, and would never leave his side after that. And, and I, I think that's a neat picture of what the Lord does to us. Sometimes he breaks us. We go through times of breaking, but oftentimes that's what makes us closer to the Lord. And that's why David, when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, um, and he said, I shall not want. He tells all the things that the shepherd does. But one of the things David says, which is interesting, is that thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I wonder if uh, you and I, we know the Lord will protect us and he will fight for us like a good shepherd would fend off the wolves. But does the rod comfort you? Is there comfort in the rod of God? That is his disciplinary corrective measures that he takes to you. I remember as a kid, I hated getting spanked. Uh, spankings were no fun, um, but I believe spanking is biblical. And doing it correctly in love with real care uh, and don't, you know, most people do it wrongly, frankly, and it is abusive. 
But um, if you were raised in a home like mine where my dad would send me to my room and he'd give me time to think about it and then he'd come explain, make sure I understood what I had done. And he used a paddle, a rod, um, because he didn't want to use his hand as an instrument of cruelty and not to have the idea of him, you know, taking his hand and just, you know, hauling off and hitting me. He used this little piece of wood that was the rod. And I didn't like the rod. But you know what's funny as a kid? And, and those of you who were spanked rightly, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There was something that was really good about being spanked. And that is there was a comfort that came, especially afterwards. I didn't like the actual spanking. But after the spanking, there was a sense of restoration and a reset and a new start. And you knew you were in good standing with your mom and dad. And, and you really, it was all over. That was a done deal. Old things were passed away. All things became new. And there was something about that that you learned uh, in the families that did the spanking correctly that was so comforting and so good. And I was never closer to my parents than after a good old-fashioned spanking. Um, and uh, our world has demonized it and called it abuse and all that. And uh, it's just so sad because it's, it's, it, a lot of people have grown up with condemnation and failure and guilt their whole life and never got spanked and they never were uh, corrected or, and they wonder why they're such a mess. And it's so sad. Uh, the Lord knew what he did when he created the hind end of a person for that purpose. Uh, and the, 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 the parent that spares the rod will spoil his child. He who spares the rod hates his son. That's what the Bible says. That's not me. Don't be mad at me for that, all you people out there that are listening to the psychologists and the doctors that think they know more than the Bible. Um, but you, you know, the truth is, uh, the, 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 the scriptures, you know, make it really clear that a loving and thoughtful, careful, uh, using of the board of correction, correction to the seat of learning, uh, is a, is a really good thing to do. Um, there's a great uh, episode we saw a while back of the Andy Griffith show, and it almost seemed hilarious because our culture is so far away, but uh, look up the one where the little kid, you can see it on Netflix or whatever, where the little kid, you know, is riding his bike on the sidewalk and doing all this stuff. And he ends up getting his bike compensated by the sheriff. And, and the dad comes in and it's this whole dissertation, how the kid just needs a good spanking. And the dad is one of these new modern fathers who do, doesn't believe in spanking, that his little angel kid would never do anything wrong. And it's just a great thing. And it's, it's like you watch that episode, you think, man, today, you know, the sheriff would be taken to jail because he spanked or recommended spanking a child. And it was so, you know, far, foreign in those days. But I think we should get back to the good old days where parents lovingly, carefully, thoughtfully, um, you know, spank their children. The reason I say that is because he, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down by green pastures, leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. But one of the things that I can say is he also comforts me with what? His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Um, and I, I hope you can learn that comfort of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord, you, you might learn to actually love. Um, but all that to say, that's part of the shepherd. But when Christ comes, the, you know, the, the second coming of Christ, he's coming with a rod, but this time it's going to be a rod of radical correction. Um, it's not going to be like the warm picture that I just painted there. Um, he's coming with a sword coming out of his mouth, actually, uh, when he comes the second time. Now, that's not literally what's going to happen. People try to paint that. The Renaissance painters tried to paint pictures of Jesus' second coming with a sword coming out of his mouth. You're like, what's that thing coming out of his mouth? But it wasn't meant to be painted as much as the image of the sword is what? Who can say? 
the word of God, right? Coming out of his mouth. And that's what's gonna condemn the world that is Christ rejecting and sinful. When he returns his second coming, the word of God will be that which is that sharp sword that's gonna cut deeply at that time. And he's coming with a rod, okay? So interesting, that's the first thing that's mentioned here in this, this scripture, this little verse about the second coming of Jesus. Well, how do you know it's Jesus? There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. The stem of Jesse. Now, for you Bible students, who can recall, who is Jesse? Why is Jesse suddenly brought up? Anybody? If you said it's the father of David, you're correct. So when we say the stem of Jesse, picture a genealogical, you know, uh, tree, you know, the branches of the genealogy. And um, that's kind of the imagery Isaiah is wanting us to see. There's the branch of Jesse, a descendant, if you would, of Jesse. First there was Jesse, then there was David. And do you, write, do you recall the covenant that was made? It's called the Davidic covenant. There's a lot of covenants in the Bible, the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant, remember when David really, his heart's desire was to build a temple for the Lord. He says, man, I got a house and, and look at the Lord still meeting in a tent. He says, I need to build a, a temple to the Lord. And, um, and remember what happened? It's kind of a funny story. David said uh, to his kind of the, the prophet Nathan that was at that time sort of the, the prophet on duty. And he tells Nathan, Nathan, I want to build a temple to the Lord. And Nathan says, do all that's in your heart. Good job. That sounds like a great plan. <laughs> and the prophet spoke too soon. The prophet went home and the Lord said, Nathan, you totally blew it. You weren't supposed to tell David. He's not going to build the house, uh, my house, because he's got blood on his hands. I, I use him for a purpose and it's not to build my house. It's to basically slaughter people. <laughs> now, now, that might sound horrible, but that's what David was good at. David was just good at killing the enemies of Israel. And that, he had blood on his hands. That's just who he was. That's the way God wired him. Interesting, he was also a musician. You don't always see those two things uh, put together, but David was that kind of guy. Remember, he killed a whole army of Philistines, and, well, I don't even want to tell the story because out of context, you'll think I'm crazy. But all that to say, David was a man's man. He was, he was a guy who knew how to kill people. So Nathan comes back and says, oh, okay, David, sorry I spoke too soon. You can't build a house of the Lord, um, and, uh, and it's because you have blood on your hands. Now, um, by the way, after Nathan tells David this, David goes back to what he's good at. In the next chapter in that story, it says, and, and you can see the words, David slew, David killed, David wiped out. He just, he went on this rampage and he, of all the enemies of Israel and he just wiped everybody out, just did what he was really good at. And then he brings all the spoil back and stacks up all the stuff and says, okay, if I can't build the temple, I'm gonna collect all the stuff we need to have a temple so that my son will be able to build the temple. And David did all the gathering of the stuff and he did it by doing what he was good at. Man, there's so many lessons there. Do what you're called to do. Be, do what you're good at. Uh, flourish in your talent and your gifting. But here's the thing about this. David was really bummed when he heard Nathan the prophet say, you can't build the house of the Lord. You can't do that. David was so bummed about that. He wanted to do that. But here's the thing. The Lord said, David, you know, I've got a promise for you. Um, and this is just like the Lord. You want something? He says, no, but he's got something so much better. And what he said, David, here's what I'm going to do. You're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house and it's going to be an everlasting house. 
you're going to have a throne. The, the throne of David is going to last forever and ever and ever. Man, what king could ever say that? What queen could ever say that? Some of you British people over there might say, well, the Queen of England, she's been on the throne now for a lot of years, you know, getting close to 100 years. That's a long time. Nothing compared to the throne of David and his descendants. Jesus is a descendant of David. Remember blind Bart, uh, who said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. That was acknowledging that Jesus was a descendant of David. And Jesus would be the king of kings, the one that would rule and reign for all eternity. And that's the Davidic covenant. God promised to David that through him and his seed, his ancestors, there would be the, the Messiah who would have an everlasting throne and he would be seated on the throne in Jerusalem. That's still yet to happen. That's what we're going to read about here in chapter 11. So this, this idea of the son of Jesse, uh, David, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the, the part of the Messiah that people were looking for. They, the, the Messiah had to be uh, uh, the stem or a relative of Jesse. Um, and then there's another term here that's interesting. So it says, verse 1, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The, the word branch there is interesting. Some of you, if you have the King Jimmy like I do, it, it, the word branch is in capital letter there, branch. Uh, why? Because it's not just a branch, like a, just, you know, a, a noun, but it's actually a, a sort of a, a title or a name. Um, well, what is, who's got the name branch? Well, this is one of the names of the Messiah, the branch. Um, how so? Well, this is where it gets really interesting. Uh, keep your finger here, if you would, and go with me to um, uh, Matthew chapter uh, 2. If you flip over to the New Testament and you go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, there's this interesting little speaking of the fulfilling of a prophecy. You know how in the New Testament, it's, and thus was fulfilled the prophecy of so-and-so and what have you. And it's so cool. You see the prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament. We've been talking about a lot of those lately. Jesus riding on the colt of a donkey. Jesus, you know, the very day he could have ridden into Jerusalem, they could have known, and, and that he would be born in Bethlehem. These are things we've talked about. But check this one out. This is Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. It says, and he, Jesus, came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, so you guys say, hey, I know that story. Jesus, you know, he's born in Bethlehem. They went down to Egypt. But when they came back from Egypt, they went up to Nazareth. And that's where he grew up. And that's one of the places we drive by when I go to uh, Israel with my uh, church cruise that we go over there. We, we drive by the little town of Nazareth, and it's really a, a somber scene because you know the Valley of Armageddon? People don't know this unless you're there. You can stand in Nazareth and look out over the valley below, and you're looking at the Valley of Armageddon. Did you ever wonder, like when Jesus was 10 years old, did he ever look over that valley and think, this is where I'm going to return someday and war against all the nations? Like, like, I mean, just that's such a profound consideration, but Nazareth overlooks the Valley of Armageddon. But, um, but all that to say, Jesus uh, was called a Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. Now, don't be confused between the Nazarite vow and a Nazarene. Those two things are separate, different issues. But a Nazarene was a person from Nazareth. 
And you say, okay, great, Brett. So Jesus was from Nazareth. We know that. But, but here in Matthew's gospel, he says it was fulfilling something that the prophets spoke of. But here's the thing. If you're not a, um, a student of scripture, you might be hard pressed to know where in the Bible does it say that he would be called a Nazarene. And um, a lot of, you know, if you want to stump a, 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 you know, a pastor or somebody, ask them, where is that prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus being called a Nazarene? Because most people couldn't tell you where that is. Um, but it's actually in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. That's where this prophecy, you say, I didn't see the word Nazarene. Yes, you did. That's why the word branch is capitalized. The Hebrew word for uh, branch is Netzer. Um, um, and, um, and that word Netzer is where the word uh, sprout or branch is. That's what it means. And so Nazareth means sprout town or branch town, the town of branches. Um, um, like there were, you know, places where I used to live where there was such and such branch or gulch or, you know, whatever. There's places named that, that Nazareth is branch town. Nazareth uh, is the branch town. And that's where Jesus was from. And so here in Isaiah 11, 1, this is just great stuff. It says that the sprout of David, this, uh, the descendant of David, shall be a branch that shall grow out of his roots, the roots of David. And that's, that's the idea, that he'd be called sort of this branch. That's where it comes from, Isaiah 11.1. 1. You won't find anywhere else in the Old Testament prophets talking about Jesus being a Nazarene. It's kind of this mysterious thing. Some people believe the Bible's actually making, if you know the Hebrew language, he's making sort of a, a pun using this word Nazar to speak that Jesus was from Nazareth. And, um, and it's a sort of a play on words, not to be funny, by the way, but to, to uh, just be more of, a, more of a play on words. And the Hebrew authors did that. Isaiah was one of the guys who did that kind of stuff, used those techniques. So if you ever want to know the answer to when did the Bible say that Jesus would be out of Nazareth, it's right here in chapter 11, verse 1. He will grow out of the root of Jesse, which identifies Jesus, by the way. So, uh, so many prophecies. More than 300 prophecies were specifically about Jesus in his first coming. That he'd be a branch living in Nazareth. Nazareth and that he'd be related to David. We just covered two in verse 1. Direct prophecies that, David, that uh, Jesus would fulfill. The Davidic covenant, but also this idea of the branch. Are you guys with me on that? I hope you see that. 300 prophecies. We just did two in one verse. That's pretty cool. Um, now, by the way, concerning Christ's second coming... There's more than 300. Some say there's close to 1,000 prophecies in the Bible about the second coming of Christ. And we'll see that as we get closer to it here in chapter 11. Now, we can't leave chapter 11, verse 2 undone because, man, what a, what a scripture. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and fear. Um, now, the thing about this is uh, there's actually uh, seven sort of, uh, it's a sevenfold description. Uh, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Um, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the, and, and the spirit of fear of the Lord all upon uh, this Jesus, the Messiah. Now, this gives us some answers to some other questions of the Bible. 
Have you ever heard uh, the term the seven spirits of God? Where do you hear that phrase? Well, it comes from mostly there in the book of Revelation. And some people have been confused by this. Are there seven Holy Spirits? No. Um, This is where they get this. It's uh, Revelation. You can flip there or just jot down these notes. But Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, it says, um, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, that'd be Asia Minor, not, you know, uh, Asia like Japan or China, but the idea is like um, the, the Middle East. Um, John, to the seven churches of, which are in Asia, grace and peace be you, peace from him which is and which was and is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And then it says, and from Jesus Christ, who's the faithful witness. What are these seven spirits that are before the throne of God that's being talked about here? And um, the, you know, we're not talking about angels because it'd say seven angels if it was angels. But these are seven, seven uh, spirits. What's going on there? We'll flip just a page or two to Revelation chapter 5. And in Revelation chapter 5, what a glorious passage this is. In fact, <laughs> I'm glad we're going here because I want to show you where this imagery of the root of David, uh, the branch of David, the, the springing up of the Nazar, It's all tied together here. Check it out. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, that would be God the Father, a book or a scroll written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now, um, you know, by the way, this is where we know um, this is actually, you know, the title deed to uh, planet Earth. Uh, But that's a whole other discussion. This scroll with seven seals, it's a title deed to planet Earth. And, and then the question comes in verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals uh, of the scroll, uh, the book? And verse 3, No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither look thereon. Now, if you were to take over a piece of property and you got the title deed, you'd have to break the seals. And each seal of that scroll would be requirements for you to uh, um, accommodate to make sure that you were the rightful owner of that property. You had to sort of satisfy the qualifications that those seven seals uh, of the scroll would say. And apparently there's no one on heaven or earth, man or on the earth anywhere, who could open the seals and legitimately take ownership of the earth. Question, who owns the earth right now? The answer, Satan. Um, when did that happen? Um, God gave the earth to man at Adam and Eve and said, subdue the earth, uh, and uh, they were stewards of the earth. And then man handed the title deed over to Satan there in the Garden of Eden when they sinned. And that's why he's called the prince of this world, the god of this world. Satan is somewhat in control of this world. He still has to su- submit. He can't do total dastardly stuff without God. Remember Job and the having to get permission to mess with Job? But right now, that's what he's called, the prince of this world and the god of this world. So there's a real bummer because Satan has this world. He's got the title lead. Who's worthy to open up the scroll and take the earth back? No one, it says here, heaven or earth, man or on the, anywhere that could do it, neither even look at the scroll, verse 3. And then verse 4 says, And I, John, wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. Verse 5. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Does that ring a bell? The netzer, the branch, the root of David, the son of Jesse. It says, he hath prevailed to open up the book 
and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns, listen, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth unto all the earth. What? (laughs) What an imagery uh, that, that John is seeing here. He sees that Jesus is the one, the branch, the root of David, the Netzer, is the only one able to take the title deed of planet Earth back. And he's going to do it right here before the tribulation, the day of the Lord. It's stuff we've been talking about for years here. There's coming a time where Jesus is going to take the, the title deed. And then John looks and, and, you know, the elder says, behold, the branch, the root of David. And, and what does he see? He sees a lamb. A lamb as it had been slain. What an interesting sight that is. But the lamb Again, these images aren't to paint a picture with seven horns and seven eyes and all these weird things. I've seen artists try to do it. But these, the Hebrew poetry and the Hebrew writers, they would use these for um, thoughtful imagery that means certain things. It's not meant to be painted as much as it's meant to be understood what these things mean. And the idea here is horns, and I'm getting way deeper into this than I planned. Horns are a symbol of, uh, of authority and power. Seven is the number of completion and perfection. And Christ is going to come in total power, uh, and no one will be able to challenge his authority and power when he comes again. Seven horns. But then it says seven eyes, which, and this, so this is one lamb, Jesus, who has seven eyes. And those eyes are the seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So you have to understand these seven things, whatever you want to call them, spirits, are part of Jesus, the lamb that was slain. Are you guys with me? Seven eyes within the same lamb. It's not seven individual beings, if you would. It's part of who Jesus is. And you might put it this way. It's the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit that was upon Jesus Christ. Huh? What? Well, I believe this, again, where do, where do we find the little hints in the Bible? Well, already in Revelation, it's talking about the branch of David. I wonder if the mentioning of the branch of David, Isaiah chapter uh, 11, verse 1, if there's any link to this verse in Revelation, it's talking about the branch of David, and then suddenly talks about the seven spirits of God. Well, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 11. I hope you're still following with me on this. I know this is a little bit of a brain bender, But um, if you look at the Hebrew in chapter 2, there are seven sort of qualities to the Spirit of the Lord. Um, The first one, and and these are hard to number, but you kind of have to be careful. You don't see it in the English as much. Uh, You see it better in the Hebrew. But the first one, if you're numbering these, number one, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's number one. The Spirit of Jehovah. Um, that the Spirit of God will rest upon him. And we can say that happened, you know, in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus got baptized and the Holy Spirit rested upon him and filled him and, and empowered him for the ministry uh, that he was beginning, uh, the, the Spirit. That's number one, the Spirit of the Jehovah. Remember the word Lord when it's all capital letters? It means Jehovah. So that's number one, the Spirit of the Lord. Number two, shall rest upon him. Uh, pardon me, number two, the Spirit of wisdom, the spirit of wisdom. Um, that's number two. Um, and uh, then number three, the spirit of understanding, and then the spirit of counsel, and then the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, 
and of the fear of the Lord. There's seven there uh, if you uh, tie them all together and see what's being said there in the original Hebrew. But it's talking about the sevenfold, um, you know, nature or ministry of what the Spirit of God did on Jesus and all of those things. And that's worth meditation. The Spirit of, you know, the Spirit of Jehovah, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear. All of that. The fear of the Lord, by the way. It's not being afraid, but it's the fear of the Lord. And, and that's, that's something we should all have, respect and reverence toward God. So I believe the mystery of the seven spirits of the book of Revelation is answered here in the same context when, he, when he's talking about the, the branch or the root of David in Revelation. It, it sort of echoes back to Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, which answers what those seven spirits are. Um, so you can chew on that one or think about that one for a while. By the way, um, there are 357 direct quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation alone. Did you hear what I just said? 357 uh, direct quotes in the book of Revelation to the Old Testament. And, um, uh, and, and you need to read the Old Testament really to fully understand the New Testament. Remember I told you that one pastor said we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? No wonder people don't understand the book of Revelation. And they say, well, we're not going to go through that book. It's too difficult to understand. It's because you've unhitched yourself from the, from the Old Testament that Revelation makes no sense. But when you have the, the Bible to compare itself, the Old Testament and the New, it gives all the answers, the keys that unlock the mysteries are all found in Scripture. Don't, don't miss that. I love that you guys are willing to go through the book of Isaiah on a Wednesday night because you'll see how these little, little uh, um, padlocks are unlocked as we keep plugging away through the Scriptures. Well, again, we could spend a whole several months on those two verses, but... This is talking about the person, by the way, of the kingdom. Um, And then we're going to see what he does, this person of the kingdom. Verse 3, Isaiah 11, 3, it says, And he shall make of him quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. In other words, he won't have biases. Isn't that an interesting thing about how you can judge someone by their first appearance. Um, It's always a mistake to judge people. Um, You know, now we are to be inspectors of people. The Bible says, you know, judge not lest you be judged. But in the same chapter, Jesus talked about that. He says, but you'll know them by their fruit. So you might not be judging people, but you are fruit inspectors. And man, we're not very good at judging people. Um, We think we are. Some of you might even pride yourself on being a good judge of character or a good judge of friendship or whatever, but um, you and I fail on that. I, I'm, I'm always kind of amazed that sometimes you meet these people and you, the first view, you're kind of like, who is this person? But then you start to realize, wow, they're really substantive and they're intelligent and they've got so much to offer. And, um, you know, I love that. Uh, I've found that in athletics as well over the years. People that didn't look very athletic, sometimes they are. And it's so funny. You see some big guy that looks like he can barely walk and then he runs and he just bolts and nobody can catch him. It's like really a funny kind of dynamic. But, but the Lord, when he returns, Jesus, he's going to be the perfect judge and he's not going to judge a book by the cover. That's what this verse is saying. He's going to have wisdom and with, uh, you know, he's not going to judge by the sight of his eyes or reprove by just the things that he hears from his ears, but he's going to have no bias and he's going to look right into a person. Verse 4, 
but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breadth of his lips shall he slay the wicked and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. What's this talking about? This is Christ's second coming. When Jesus, the root of David, the Nazar, the branch, comes, he's going to come as the king of kings, but he's also going to come as the judge of all judges. The first time he came to be judged of the world, this time he's coming to be the judge of the world. And he's going to judge in righteousness and equity, and he's going to know exactly how to judge things. And people will say, righteous and true are his judgments. Nobody's going to challenge his judgment. But that's part of the deal. And he's going to slay the wicked with the breath of his lips. Um, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. Faithfulness, the girdle of his reins. This is just talking about Christ in his second coming. And he's coming. Um, and he's going to go on a, a righteous rampage against a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Now, that's, that first part is talking about the person of the kingdom. And then verses 3 through 5 talk about what he's going to do when he comes, his second coming. Um, you can also read Revelation chapter 19. He's going to come and make war. That's where his vesture is dipped in blood, and he's going to come with a sword coming out of his mouth. All the same time, his second coming talked about in verses 3 through 5, and also Revelation chapter 19, the second coming of Christ. It's going to be radical. But after that battle of Armageddon is wrapped up, what's going to happen? What does the kingdom look like when Christ rules and reigns? Well, Isaiah... We, we don't have a ton in the Bible that talks about the kingdom and what it looks like. Um, and so um, suddenly Isaiah gives us just a little bit to go on and to look at. And it's right here, starting in verse 6. It says there, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, uh, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of an asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. Um, um, that's an adder, which is a deadly poisonous uh, snake. Um, verse 9, And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Even as there's, the ocean is covered with water, the world's going to know the Lord is righteous and he's reigning, so that's it. It's just going to be such a done deal. And it's going to be a time of great peace and prosperity and blessing. You know what's interesting is um, one thing I've observed um, in my own personal journey and walk is um, I always, I always love animals. I've had, a, I've always been a guy who loved animals. We had lots of critters on our little farm growing up, and I, I remember hating the time when the butcher would come. We had a few beef cows, you know, and I remember when our steer would eventually his day would come. Now the problem is we named them. That was the first mistake. We had three dairy cows, and that was easy: Rosie, Daisy, and Pansy. <laughs> they were all Jerseys. If you don't know what a Jersey is, they crank out tons of milk. Uh, one of our cows, eight gallons a day, Daisy, uh, and half of that was cream, half of that was milk. It was radical, but um, but we also had Huey, Dewey, and Louie, which were our beef cows. <laughs> and but I remember um, when the butcher would come, and you know it was time, you know Huey's time to become a hamburger on our table, 
And I remember as a kid just being kind of sad, you know, and it was such a hard thing to watch. Now, by the way, I think every person should have to go through that. When you eat a hamburger, to understand that there was a, a, a sort of a, a sacrifice of a life. Um, I think that's really important for people to see that. That's what the whole picture of the Old Testament of the sacrifice, you bring a lamb and it would be, they'd slit the throat of the lamb and put it on an altar and people would have to say, that's because of my sin. And there was something very sobering and real about that. A lot of you people from Portlandia, you don't even know that when you eat a hamburger, there used to be a living cow walking around. Some of you are too aware of it, so you become vegans and that's, the, that's, that's going crazy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, that, that, that's, you know, that's just, if you want to go vegan, good for you, but that, don't make a biblical case out of that because eating meat is biblical. But here, um, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, when you watch, watch the animal shows and stuff where the animals are killing each other, does your heart ever sink when you see the, you know, the lion catch the gazelle? Um, uh, I was watching one of those nature shows the other day and showed the eaglets or these little birds, I forget what they were called, but they were on a, perched on a cliff. And when it came time, they'd try to jump out of the nest. They just tumbled thousands of feet down this cliff and half of the little eaglets or whatever survived. And the other ones were just splattered on the rocks and they died. And you're like, man, that doesn't work too well. And then one of them, another bird came and ate up the, the one that lived. And I was like, man, that wasn't very nice. And you just see that, man, all, you know, the animal kingdom is in disarray and, and there's blood and stuff like that. And it just feels kind of like a bummer. Now, some of you, if you're, in a, you know, sen- don't have any senses toward that at all, you think I'm nuts. Brett, you've been in Portland too long. You care for animals and all that. Well, I believe the Lord cares for animals because he even knows that with a little bird, a sparrow, which is worthless, uh, dies, that doesn't go without the Lord noticing and caring about that. So that's kind of an interesting thing. The reason I go into all that is because did you know that's all, all that stuff, when you watched, you know, when you were a kid, like at my age, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, and you saw the, the lion eating the guts out of the zebra, and you kind of felt bad for the poor zebra that was so cute while he was running around the field. Now the lion's eating. That's the fallen world that we live in. It's all part of the fallen condition of creation. And one of the things that's going to happen when Christ returns is he's going to restore the earth back to its former greatness. And that's what's being talked about here. The lion is going to, we always say this, the lion will lie down with the lamb. The Bible doesn't really say that. It says the wolf will lie down with the the lamb. And it says that the leopard uh, will lie down with the kid or goats, a little goatlet. Um, and it says that the, you know, that the lion, he is mentioned here uh, in verse 6, the, the young lion and the fatling uh, will lie together, and, and the little child will lead them all, all these animals. In other words, suddenly in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, or the kingdom, I should say, um, these animals are not going to be eating each other anymore. You know, the, the wolf's going to just hang out with the little lambs, and there won't be any chomping down of lamb chops for the wolf anymore. And uh, it seems that the, uh, in the kingdom, the lion uh, is going to eat, verse 7, you know, hay, like the oxen eats hay. They're, they're not going to be carnivorous anymore in the kingdom of God. But the reason why that is because there's going to be peace and prosperity, not only with, between people, but even in the animal kingdom. And a little child can sit over the uh, hole of an asp or a, um, an adder, those deadly snakes, but the snake won't bite, nor will its venom kill. Um, so it's going to be a whole different deal. So what this is telling us is nature itself 
is going to be restored into its former glory before the fall of man. When Adam and Eve sinned, not only did they bring, you know, death and disease and thorns and toil and pain in childbirth, but the animal kingdom is in a fallen state. And whenever you see stuff in the animal kingdom, you're kind of like, oh, that's kind of sad. Man, that's all going to be made right in the kingdom. And uh, there's more we can talk about. Even creation is groaning right now, the Bible says. And the, the Bible says when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom, all the trees of the field will clap their hands. <laughs> right now they're depressed. Um, and if you're a true, like, you know, I've noticed in Portland, we've got all the environmentalists. And you have to watch out because extreme environmentalism is a, is a um, religion in and of itself. Earth worship is something that goes back all the way to the ancient people, the Egyptians, the Canaanites. They worshiped Mother Nature and Earth and the sun and trees and all that stuff. Stupid. Uh, don't worship the creation. Worship the creator. In Romans chapter 1, that's the description of the hard-hearted man that the Lord's just going to give over to their own stupidity and their own lusts. He says those that worship, they're not thankful to God, nor are they willing to give glory to God, but they worship the creation rather than the creator. Don't be a Portlandia person like that. If you care about trees, don't hug a tree. Pray this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because when the kingdom of God is set, when Jesus returns, all the trees of the field will clap their hands. <laughs> the, the, the idea is nature will be restored. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny how all this debate about global warming and the earth and all that stuff. And um, I do believe we're supposed to be good stewards of the earth. No question. I'm not arguing for us trashing the earth and stuff like that. Some people say that that's what I teach. Uh, that's ridiculous. Um, I believe we're to be good stewards and uh, I'm into recycling and all that stuff. I do eat hamburgers. I'm not a vegan, so sorry about that. But, uh, but Jesus was too. So there, he ate meat. Um, but, but if you want to really care about the earth, understand the ultimate solution is Christ's second coming. Uh, and that's kind of what this is describing as the little child will be able to lead these ferocious animals, lions, tigers and bears. Oh my, we got to get going here. Um, So (laughs) verse 10, it says, and in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, not there, the branch, Jesus, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. Uh, To it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. Okay, so there's an ensign uh, that, that the Gentiles will seek during this time after he re- returns, the second coming of Christ. Now, this gets confusing for people. Remember the debate about whether the rapture happens before the tribulation or after the tribulation or middle of tribulation? There's different views on all that. But some people say, see, these are Gentiles gathering around Jesus during this time. That's the tribulation when he's pouring out his wrath and he's returning and the root of Jesse and suddenly these Gentiles are gathering around his ensign. Well, let's, let's talk about the ensign, first of all. The word ensign there, the Hebrew word is nis, nisi or nis. And um, does anybody remember the name of God, Jehovah Nisi? Or it's a Jehovah Nis. It's Jehovah our banner. The, the word ensign is a banner or flag. It's like a single pole with a flag hanging, kind of like you picture in the night days where they had the pavilions and they're 
there, each platoon or whatever, each squadron had a, a pole with their flag that would mark, have a sign that would mark that particular group. That's what this is, the banner. And they would hold up that banner when it was time to gather around and hear their next marching orders or uh, hear the next information of what was going on. And that's what the ensign or the sign or the flag or the banner was used for. So if you could picture, Christ is returning. His ensign is up. Does anybody want to take a guess? What do you think the, the symbol on his ensign will be? There's some interesting debate on this one. Scholars, there's two main things that people argue, and I'll just give you this, this stuff you can look up and chew on and figure out for yourself. But some would say, well, of course, it's the lion. Uh, just like in the British days when they had the lion, or even the Babylonians, their ensigns had the lion on their flags in Babylonian times. Um, so a lot of people like the lion. That could be, that would make sense, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But some Bible scholars argue that it's going to be a snake. A what? A snake, the, the Jesus one? They're saying, yeah, it could be the snake wrapped around a pole. Oh, you mean like what's on the ambulance? Yes, because before it was the ambulance symbol, um, you know, and all that, it was a sign of Jesus. Remember Jesus talked about that? Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so it was wrapped around the brass pole, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Um, and, and that's a picture of Christ who died on the cross, became sin for us, died on the cross for our sins. So some say it's going to be the, that acephalous, uh, you know, or whatever uh, symbol of the snake in the pole that you see on an ambulance or on your pharmacy or whatever. Um, you, can, you can debate that. But it's going to be a flag. It's going to mark Jesus. And the Gentiles will gather. Now, you say, but Brett, if the Gentiles gather on Jesus, does that make them the church? Not necessarily. The church is raptured. Um, there are three main groups you need to understand. There, as far as um, God's elect, and he calls different people his elect, three main groups. One is the church, you and me right now, we're called the elect. Number two, I probably should have said Jews are first. The Jews were the first of God's elect, chosen people, elect, selected out of the rest of humanity, the Jews, then the church. But there's a third group that is going to be included in the tribulation called the tribulation saints. That That is after the rapture of the church, in the tribulation period, there's a bunch of people that are going to believe in and accept Jesus Christ. I wonder if some of your family members will actually, um, you know, if the rapture of the church happens and suddenly, you know, Athey Creek looks like it does tonight. There's not a person in the building, <laughs> but we're, you know, we're meeting and stuff and nobody shows up. What if the rapture of the church happened and your family who's unbelieving people sees that you're gone, they'll, they'll, they'll think, what was that thing about the church and rapture and all that weirdness. And they'll, they'll sort of remember who you were and what you believed in. And I wonder if there's going to be millions and millions of people during the tribulation period who will choose to believe and accept Christ uh, during that time period. Um, they're called the tribulation saints. And they're also called the elect, I believe, in the Bible. Now you say, Brett, what does that have to do with anything? Well, um, a lot. You know, um, like in Matthew 24, uh, the post-tribulation view people say, see, in Matthew 24, it says the Lord's going to gather his elect during the tribulation period, and, and uh, that's the church. Um, I don't believe that's who we're talking about. We're talking about the Jews uh, that are going to be gathered uh, during the tribulation period. Um, so just a nuanced thing that you, you, sh you should be aware of. Um, but this ensign will be lifted. The Gentiles shall, shall seek him, and rest, his rest shall be glorious. Um, verse 11. 
And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt, from Pathros, uh, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, which is, you know, modern Iraq, from uh, Hamath, uh, from the islands of the sea. And he shall set an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Okay, so he's going to gather the Jews. Brett, I'm confused. When are the Jews going to be gathered? Well, there's a couple gatherings of the Jews. And um, this gets a little complicated, but um, there there was a gathering, if you might, um, after the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, you know, uh, back uh, 70 years of captivity. But it it was 586 when, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar wiped out Jerusalem. But there was a regathering of the people. Some people call that a gathering of the Jews, a, a sort of a regrouping. But um, there's another one that I think is the one, one of the big ones, and that is Ezekiel's prophecy about how the Lord would scatter his people because they were doing all kinds of bad things. Let me read to you from Ezekiel chapter 36. You can jot this down in your notes, but this is where the Bible talks about the Lord scattering the Jews over all the world. Um, And for those of you that don't know your world history, no people group in the world history has ever been scattered all over the earth only to be regrouped and regathered and become a nation again in its own land. It's never happened. Bible predicted that would happen thousands of years before it happened. Um, That's evidence that the Jews are one of the greatest defenses that God exists. Because God in his word said that the Jews would be scattered all over the world and then he would gather them up again. Listen to this, Ezekiel Uh, hundreds of years before AD 70 when the Jews were scattered by the Romans. That's when the Jews were, it's called the diaspora, when the Jews were scattered all over the world. You couldn't find a Jew uh, in Jerusalem uh, or anywhere in Israel after AD 70 because, you know, the Roman Empire made that happen. But it's Ezekiel 36, verse 16. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way, by their own doings, Their way was before me as uncleanness of a removed woman. Therefore, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land, for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed. That's why it's called the diaspora. They were dispersed through the countries according to their way, according to their doings. I judged them. And when they entered into the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. And they said unto them, These are the people of the Lord uh, that are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for my, mine holy name, which is the house of Israel, and, and had profaned um, the heathen whither they went. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen whither you went, And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, where I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. Listen, for I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. Ezekiel 36, verses 16 through 24, says basically what would happen. God says, I'm going to scatter you all over the world because of your rebellion. 
And I'm going to gather you. Now, this is important. Not because you're amazing or not because you've repented or not because you're awesome people. Sometimes um, people mistake my love for Israel because I think they're perfect. Uh, That's not true. The Jews have done bad things even to this day. Politically, the Jews do bad things. I'm not defending Israel politically as much as I'm defending them spiritually. They're God's chosen people. And God even says, I'm not going to regather you and put you back in the land because you're awesome. I'm going to do it because of my name. He's saying, I'm going to be shown as holy and right, and I'm going to keep my covenant that's an everlasting promise to you, the Jews. So, so what happens? In 1700s, Theodore Herschel and those guys, the Zionist movement begins, and suddenly the Jews start regathering, and they start going to the barren land called Palestina, which was named from Israel to Palestine by the Romans uh, just to spite the Jews. It wasn't because there were Philistines there. Um, the Philistines or Palestinians, that was an extinct group of people by the time Jesus was on the scene. But the Romans came, uh, Emperor Hadrian renamed it to Palestina, and the Jews were just gone after AD 70. And then almost 2,000 years later, God starts regrouping and regathering. They lost their language, they lost their identity as a na- nation, and the Lord starts regrouping. And, and man, you know, what's amazing to me is, is uh, how, you know, people that, that don't know their Bible and haven't really followed this, and people that don't really take Bible prophecy literally or any of that stuff, um, they, they should have changed their notes May 14th, 1948. In May of 1948, that's when Israel, by the League of Nations and basically a guilty world after World War II and the Holocaust, they said, okay, Jews, you have your own land. So remember how last weekend I was telling you God gave the Jews their land. Who can say that? But even more crazy, the world gave them their land out of guilt, out of World War II. And now they're trying to renege on their you know, giving of that land to the Jews. It's such an amazing story. It's kind of too much to even uh, get into tonight. But all that to say, this is, this is the first regathering of Israel, and, it, and we're going to see it in its fullness just as we get closer and closer to the rapture. And I believe it's possible um, that the second regathering, now, the, 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 it could be this, the first regathering could be when Babylonians let the, the Jews go back to their land. That was a regathering. And then the, the, the Zionist movement of the 1700s to the present day could be the second regathering. Some argue that. Others say, no, that was the first regathering. There's going to be another regathering of the Jews. After the return of Christ, he's going to group up all the Jews during the tribulation period and bring them all to Israel. And that'll be the second regathering. The point is, verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand against the second time to recover the remnant of his people that were left in Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, all these other places. So there's going to be another regrouping of God's people. I think the finished, the, fi- the, the main point is, the final regrouping and regathering is going to be in the second coming of Christ. He's going to have the Jews fully gathered into Jerusalem. And the Jews will have a function and a purpose in the millennial kingdom there in Jerusalem. But that's a whole other discussion uh, for all that. Are you guys still with me? I know this is kind of heavy-duty stuff for the, for the evening, but let's finish up here. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll even finish chapter 12. You'll be shocked. Watch this. Verse 13. It says, The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Remember, they're in a civil war during the time of Isaiah. But this is talking about 
Um, this is talking about the uh, millennial kingdom. No longer will Israel be divided then, but they'll come together as one person. And by the way, they're already, they're already that. Those northern tribes and the tribe of Judah, those regions are all part of the same country again. So this, you could say that's already kind of fulfilled. But, verse 14, they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them to the, of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Man, I wish we had more time to go into this, but we're talking about the Gaza Strip, which is on the news all the time, and also Jordan, which is Ammon, you know, the, the main city, Ammon, same people, same group of the Ammonites. And they're of Moab, and so this is including jo- uh, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, uh, and Iraq, all parts of this discussion, where during that time, uh, you know, the Lord is going to uh, fight for Israel. Verse 15, and the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of Egypt, the Egyptian sea. That's, that's um, uh, it says, with his mighty wind. He shall shake his hand over the river and shall um, smite the, in the seven streams and make men go over dry shot or dry, with dry shoes. Um, this is the Sinai Peninsula and that region. It's almost like going to be in the days of Moses when he caused the water to dry up and the people went across. It's going to be like that when Christ returns in the millennial kingdom. Not just the Egyptian waters, but also the Euphrates River, which is in Iraq, uh, the Euphrates. That's being talked about there. Verse 16, and there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people. There shall be left from Assyria as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. Now, chapter 12 is this glorious song of rejoicing about the Lord's second coming and what's going to happen. We looked at it a bit on Sunday. It's only six verses. Let's finish it up. In that day, verse 1, shalt, thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thy anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Man, I love verse 1. The Jews will say, Lord, we recognize we were totally off, and we were rebelling against you, and you were mad at us, but you've turned your anger away. How did he do that? Would you mark the little comma in that verse? Because that comma equals the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. If you look at it, though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, comma, and thou comfortest me. How was God's anger turned away? The wrath that was meant for you and me and for the Jews was turned away from us and turned and put on Jesus Christ. Um, And because of that, we're comforted. The comma in that verse is the cross. And I think that's the most powerful thing right there. So, verse 2, behold, God is my salvation. Boy, I love this. You should memorize this verse. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord, Jehovah, is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Boy, what a great, great verse. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Are you tempted to be afraid right now with the coronavirus, with the economy, with things that are going on around the world? Man, just speak this. God is my salvation. I will trust in him. Even Jehovah, the Lord, Jehovah. Man, that's, that's where we can put our trust, you know. He's my strength and my song uh, and has become my victory or my salvation. Therefore, verse 3, we looked at this verse on Sunday. With joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. If you missed that study, we called it the well. And uh, you, you got to get caught up on that one. That's an important one. Verse 4, and in that day shall ye say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention 
that his name is exalted. Man, everybody's going to be saying, wow, praise the Lord. And nobody will be saying it derogatorily or praise the Lord flippantly. They'll be saying, praise be to the Lord because he's exalted. Sing, verse 5, unto the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, that's Jerusalem, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Singing is going to be a result of God's second coming, Jesus' second coming, and taking back the earth. And people will be praising the Lord, and they'll be singing praises to the Lord. When you and I sing praises at church here, we're just doing kingdom practice. It's like a choir rehearsal for when we get to the kingdom, because the whole world is going to be singing praise to the Lord after his second coming, because there's going to be just total clarity. We'll see that he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. That's going to be a glorious day. Well, there it is, chapter 11 and 12. We'll, we'll start into chapter 13 next week, Lord willing, and let's close with prayer. And so, Lord, tonight as we close this service, a lot of uh, detail stuff that might have been missed. I pray that you'd sharpen our minds, give us understanding of your powerful and holy scriptures, Lord. I pray that it bring forth good fruit tonight as these, your people, have taken time to invest in the study of scripture. Bless them. We pray covering upon this study now and sharpen our minds that we might remember what we've learned. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.